Well, folks, welcome to one more edition of Politics and Radamek. Berto Will is your host. Thank you so kind of for being a part of the show. We are going to have a great show for you today. How are my peeps doing? Michael Rodden says, looks like I am busy. I am for a busy week listening from away. Well, you know, at least you're listening. Thank you, B. Thank you so kind of for being here, ABQ. ABQ says, listening from Twitch. Mukhtar Shabu, welcome aboard from North Carolina. And Bridge MCP says, Hey peeps, we'll power out for over three hours. Literally just came back. Lucky you, not me. What it means is you were designed, you were destined to watch politics done right today. Bridge MCP, Ibed Avery Herod, afternoon all she says. Welcome aboard, my dear peeps. How's everybody doing today? I trust all's doing just fine. We got a great show for you. Today's going to be a pretty long interview, so I'm going to get started early. Bridge MCP says, hey, E2247, E2247, welcome aboard. Alistair Waters, greetings everyone. Watching Mr. Cruz interrogate Judge Judge Jackson was absolutely infuriating. Typical language from a human spin doctor. Tom C's here today. What did I miss yesterday? Oh, you missed a good show yesterday, and today you're going to see a cop. Actually, it's a pretty long interview. So what I'm going to do is if, ever, if I've saluted everybody, Alistair Waters, exactly. If I've saluted everybody that's here early, welcome aboard, and let's get busy and show you the interview, and then we'll come back with you thereafter. Welcome to one more edition of Politics and Right. My name is Egberto Willis. We're here today with Will Moravitz. He's a professor of political science for Alamo Community College and Texas State University for three years. He was a police officer for the city of San Marcos, Texas, having graduated top cadet from the Basic Training Academy of the University of Texas at Austin. He holds a Master's of Arts in Political Science from Texas State University and a PhD in Public Policy and administration from Walden University. He is a native of Uvalde, Uvalde, as we say in Texas. Uvalde, yes, Texas. Sir. Welcome to Politics Done Right. William, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing well, sir. Uh, thank you for uh, having me on. I appreciate it. Well, I don't know. I don't know if you're going to want to be on because you're in, da- in a dangerous spot, brother. I mean, you're an ex-cop. Well, you're still a cop or not a cop? I know you're a professor. No, I'm but... a professor, yeah. I haven't you're, been a cop okay, for a you're... while, actually. Yeah, I, uh, I, no, I I was warned that. Uh, <laughs> no, actually, like, no, I, I don't know what you were warned about, but actually, uh, we, we are pretty cool here. We like everybody here, you know. Yeah, well, but, I, I watched some of your uh, your previous videos and saw it. And so I thought thought it'd be a good time to come on. Yeah, we're 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 super fair here. Anyway, before we get started, tell me a little bit about yourself. What made you want to become a cop? What was intrinsic to you that said, ah, oh, this is what I want to do? Well, you know, growing up, I, I guess I had a, a little bit of a fascination with superheroes, and you can tell I've, I've passed it on to my mm-hmm. sons. Um, just that, that helping people, that putting yourself at risk to help others, to just always being there. Um, but I really never thought about being a cop. Um, I was more, uh, at times, thinking more of the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, my my hearing is in my one ear, and one of my ears has been bad since I was a little little child. So. Uh, the military wouldn't take me, um, but it was after 9-11 is when I said, you know, okay, policing might be something I want to do just to give back to the community. So it was really uh, that event, which I was let's see, 20, 22, just turned 23, I think. Uh, so it had a real big impact on me, and, and uh, that's when I went and did it. Unfortunately, 
family issues, marriage, being a cop doesn't very friendly to your, uh, to mm-hmm. your marriage oftentimes uh, as it is with all first responders, you know, firefighters, EMS, cause the scheduling and just the things you see and things like that. Um, and my family is, you know, most of them are, are teachers themselves. Uh, you know, my uncle, my mom, my dad, my sister. So I thought, okay, if I want to, if I want to have time for my sons, you know, after, after my divorce to, to be there whenever they needed me, if I had the same schedule, they do, it works out pretty well. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of how I ended up. Yeah. That's how I ended up in, uh, in teaching. Now, let me ask you this. What kind of cop were you? And you know what I mean? Were you one of those like tough cops that you wanted to show that, you know, oh, it's no. me um, or were you kind of the, because let me, let me just tell you, I have, I, I give cops a hard time because mm-hmm. a lot of times it's justified, but I have, I've met very good cops as well. In fact, I've written blogs on cops that have stopped me and given me such an attention that I've written the blog and gotten, a, and gotten one of them a commendation because of the blog that I wrote on that particular right. cop. So for me, it's just about doing the right thing. What kind of cop were you? Well, I was in my mid-20s, and I was, I, I, I just describe it as I wanted to, to help people not to make their lives miserable, right? So if, obviously, San Marcos is a college town. So a lot of the stuff we dealt with was, was college students drinking and doing stupid stuff. And, you know, I was pretty laid back. If you were respectful, I'd give you a warning. You know, I think I, I ran the numbers on my traffic stops. I think I gave a ticket on like 12% of, of all stops that I made. Um, I had one, one college student say, man, you're a cool cop. I wish more cops were like you, you know, because I just, for me, and, and I know a lot of officers out there would not agree with what I'm about to say, but for me, I, I had a hard time at that age anyways, you know, putting charges on a kid for doing stuff I did in college, you know? And so as long as they were respectful, you know, and like, you know, if the party, Hey, the party's really loud. Your neighbors are calling, you know, shut it down. No, if I don't have to come back, you know, no ticket. Uh, but then of course you had the kids that were like, you know, screw you and all that kind of stuff. And at that point you're like, well, you know, my, my uh, grace is, is running thin. Um, but I was always taught by my department, um, my field trainers to be start off always professional, polite and professional with every single person you encounter and don't change unless they change. Right. And so some people as one of my old sergeants used to say, just, they don't understand anything, but cursing, you know, or, or like a stern voice. Uh, but I always started off, you know, yes, sir. You know, I've been referring to you as yes, sir. That's just how I was raised. Everybody's yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. And, um, you know, even younger people than me, um, and I just, I tried to, to be a, a good cop that, that didn't just do his job, but that had integrity and, and made people, you know, res- kind of look at law enforcement, maybe in a, in a more positive light. Because, uh, you know, when, when you're a cop, you never get called for anything good, right? Everything you do uh, is because someone's hurt, someone's in need of a medical attention, you know, traffic accident, any of those things. And so, you know, it can get kind of jaded um, for the officer, but for the people you're dealing with, you know, they may end up with a perception of cops or just a bunch of assholes or something like that. And I'd always try to go out of my way to, to just be, be who I am as a person um, and, and let them see me for, for Will Morat. It's not just some, some white guy in a, in a cop uniform. Uh, and, 
when 9-11 happened, I was actually a youth minister at the time. So I, I never really had that kind of like forceful, you know, edginess to me uh, when I was working. No, but I am sure, and, and, and you know, um, I'm sure that in hanging with a whole lot of other officers mm-hmm. that you did see that negative behavior that one that said you know i I'm, I'm a police officer i'm in charge i you know i'm just this is just how i am did you see that yeah there's a couple people i worked with um, i worked night shift my whole career so you know I, I really only got to know probably about 20 officers well um out of the 87 that worked there at the time there's a few that that they might start off but professional but they were very easy to to get upset, you know, like become the pissed off police officer. Um, and, and we, you know, we did have, unfortunately, you know, there, there's not a lot of cops have trouble, um, with their marriage, not just because of, uh, what they see and how it affects them, but, you know, especially in a college town like San Marcos, there's a lot of temptation. Those college girls, they, they love a man in uniform. And I got propositioned many times, on traffic stops from, from, you know, college students. And I was faithful to my now ex-wife and and never even considered it, but I knew, I knew some that did. Uh, And, you know, there was one officer that I worked with who, I don't know whatever happened to him, but he did get fired and arrested and fired for uh, having some sort of inappropriate contact with a, with a girl on a traffic stop. Um, But by and large, you know, these were fathers and, and husbands and brothers, and, and they all seemed to, uh, just about every single one of them I talked to got in it to help people. There's a, there was a few that were like, well, <laughs> it was the best paying job for my, for what I was qualified for or things like that. Some, some are like ex-military that it's kind of a natural, just same, similar culture. Uh, beyond that, I think, you know, there, there's definitely cop humor right? There's definitely, you know, and you find this with, with veterans of, of, uh, wars or, you know, even firefighters, first responders, they kind of have a dark sense of humor because laughter is how they deal with a lot of, a lot of the stuff you see. Um, but I would say out of the 87 cops I, I worked with and the 20 or so that I knew really well, and I knew a few from other agencies as well. I think they're all good people trying to do their best. Um, everybody makes mistakes, uh, you know, when cops make a mistake, unfortunately, that can cause injury or even death um, to themselves or to others. Uh, so there's a lot of scrutiny there. Um, but like when I teach my classes, I'm like, okay, you know, everybody makes mistakes. The difference between, let's say, a cop and Tom Brady, right? Tom Brady, whether you love him or hate him, he's probably the greatest quarterback of all time, right? The GOAT. Does he throw interceptions? Did he lose games because of mm-hmm. Yeah, of course he did. And, and no one studies harder. No one you know, he's the most successful player, but when he throws an interception, unless it's the last play of the game or whatever, he he gets another chance to make it right. It's not so easy when you're a cop or a firefighter or something like that, that that sometimes the mistakes you make um, do have bad consequences. It really can't be undone. Um, And that's a lot of, a lot of pressure. You know, when, when I was young, you know, I'll be be frank with you. I, I thought officers, you know, weren't all that smart, you know, in general. I mean, and, and that perception existed at Texas State. A lot of those kids were like, 
like uh, being a cop is what happens when you only have a high school diploma. And of course, my sergeant was like a master's degree holder in criminal justice and was like, <laughs> uh, no. Um, but what I what I found going through the academy uh, UT Austin supposedly has one of the toughest academic academies in the country. Um, my alma mater. Yeah. Man. Yeah. That's what I, I, I looked at your bio. I saw that. Um, physically it was, it wasn't, you know, SAPD, Texas DPS. So those are much more physically demanding, but academically it was, it was a lot. And the information wasn't necessarily hard to grasp, but I was amazed at the amount of information you had to know. And then you also had this, this, part of the job where not everything is is clear-cut textbook right so you have to it's called the totality of the circumstances you have to factor in all these different things so you know for example using force i'm six foot one when i was a cop i was about 190 pounds i was an athlete um i was told look you're gonna have to hold off on use of force longer than the female officer because People will look at that. You're a you're a, good, a decent sized man. You know you, you should have been able to avoid escalating. Whereas a female officer, you know, five six, hundred twenty pounds, um, can use force and higher levels of force quicker when it comes to those situations. And you have to think about all that. And you know, when you're first starting out, especially since I didn't live in San Marcos, half the time I was just trying to make sure I knew where I was going when I got called. You know, what street is it? You know, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so there's just a lot to know. Um, and I do think there's a problem in the police community um, where they don't get to do, they don't do enough. And this is, I was just on a podcast called Three Cops Talk a couple of weeks ago, and they mentioned this, that they, the profession in general hasn't done a really great job of, of trying to, to communicate um, with, with the people that they're, they're sworn to protect and serve. Um, and I think... In addition to that, there's a lot of, there was, and you know, it's been a while since I've been a cop, but like we were trained to have friends that were not cops. You know, we're told that because if, you, if you're only in the cop world, you start to see everything as us versus them because everybody you deal with is being accused of a crime or doing something wrong. And that's why you're there. Uh, so it's really important, you know, to kind of have community ties that have nothing to do with your job. Uh, otherwise you can get jaded and, and, you know, it started to happen to me, uh, before I left. And that's where I want to, uh, when you talk about jaded, I want to stop you right here to ask first of all, well, I wanted to ask something beforehand, but I want to do this first. Why did you write the blue divide? Well, I wrote it because I wanted, um, people to understand how cops are trained, what the law says about use of force. Uh, and what the what the the, the academic data says um, about use of force, specifically when it comes to deadly force uh, for Black Americans, because you know you you've seen the last eight years um, since 2014, Black Lives Matter becoming uh, part of the mainstream, and of course after George Floyd was murdered, you know Black Lives Matter had a a profound impact not just here but in the entire world. Um, and, and I knew that, you know, obviously there are times when, you know, Chauvin went to prison and, and he got what was coming to him. Um, you know, they, they say there's a saying that nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. Uh, but some of the other cases, you know, I thought there was some misinformation out there. I thought there was a misunderstanding about 
uh, what cops are allowed to do. I would hear people say things like, well, why don't you shoot him in the knee? Uh, President Biden said about Officer Reardon that shot and killed Micaiah Bryant. Why didn't you shoot him in the shooter in the hand? And, you know, we're not all Bruce Willis and Die Hard, you know, where we never miss and then we can shoot, you know, a thousand yards away or something like that. Um, so I just wanted to kind of bridge that gap between people who, who may not have the highest opinion of police and those that support them and specifically for communities of color, because there, there's no doubt about it that the history of policing in America, especially in the South, um, is fraught with racism and injustices. Let me, let me, I want to, um, I want to correct that because, you know, I think the South get many too often a bad rap. I live in the South and right. I've, I've been stopped in the South and the North and elsewhere. And the truth of the matter is I, the, the way I see it, cops are cops are cops. And when you have good ones, you have good ones. And when you have bad ones, you have bad ones. Now I'm, I'm going to tell you out of, I actually call several of the good ones, bad ones, because they allow the good one, they allow the bad ones. They turn their, their, their eyes away from all the right. bad that the bad ones what are they call the blue so wall. Yeah. Complicit. Okay. Now. Yeah. Well, I was referring to the South back, you know, Jim Crow and you know, mm-hmm. that era, mm-hmm. not, not necessarily today, um, the last right. 20, 30 years. I, what um, I, I just a lot wanted of things to do, changed. I, I was actually kind of sticking up a bit from, from a Southern cops because in, in a yeah. lot of ways I'm saying uh, that too often we have th- this racial thing. We, we want to make people believe like it is so much worse in the South. Mm-hmm. Some, of my, some of my nicest racist friends are here in the South. <laughs> I, you know, we, we, we love each other. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, no, the, the, South, the South of 2022 is not the South of 1954, right. you know. But, but, but just, you know, but, but what I'm really trying to get at is this, um, Will. Um, and and, and I, I didn't, I just kind of scanned your books. I, I didn't get to see some of the flavor of the book that I'm hoping an interview can get out. Okay. Um, do you not believe that people of color do get a different type of treatment from cops in the aggregate? Well, some of the studies I cited show that in lower levels of force, yes, mm-hmm. um, that, that is true. When it comes to deadly force, though, uh, several of the studies I found actually showed either no discrepancy or in some cases in a, in a simulation type training that Washington State University did, um, that cops were actually slightly more likely to shoot white people in situations. And when asked about it, these officers told the professors, um, and, and you can find the, the study online um, that's referenced in my book. Um, they said that they were, they, they hesitated because they know how it looks, when a, especially when a white cop shoots a black man or a black woman. Um, so I think in the last eight years, you know, because of Black Lives Matter and because of the, the attention um, that the issue has drawn, I think in a lot of cases, cops are a little bit more hesitant to use deadly force uh, because they know that the scrutiny is going to come, even if it's justified. Um, but no, I, I definitely, you know, the, the use of force data does show that at lower levels of force, uh, specifically, you know, young black men are going to going to have more, uh, I guess, encounters of that nature um, than other people. Let me ask you a question. Um, I, 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 I do a lot of blogging and I blogged a video where there was this 14 year old black kid fighting with a 
16 year old white kid or 17 year old white kid. I don't remember which one. The, the white kid was the aggressor. They're fighting in the mall. Two cops came. They didn't use deadly force, but they broke the fight right. up. They put the white guy to sit and they threw the black guy down on the ground, sat down on him, put handcuffs on him. Um, I, I, I see videos in school and we see videos of white kids getting arrested too. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to right, get right. it at all. But what I find difficult, and even let's say, say um, with, with yourself, I, I, I just find it hard for everyone not to see that there is a distinct difference in policing. Let me, let me, let me, t- let me point out something that you mentioned here that is, that's apropos. You said that they did a study at this university with the cops and when they drew, when they did this experiment, the cops drew their guns quicker at, on the white person than the black person. Let me tell you another study that I've, that I've done myself. I've done the study that says, who do you think is the criminal? And because I'm a smart dude and you're a smart dude, we both are longhorns, brother. Uh, <laughs> one, of, you know, um, one of the things I did for that test is I made sure to make it that I was in control of what was being tested. In other words, it was a test. We knew what the outcome was likely or wanted to be. And the test isn't really valid. And in other words, a lot of these control studies that, that they want to make control studies are not appropriate. What you have to do is look at the empirical data out there because that mm-hmm. is what's happened without, without you knowing that you're being tested for something. Do you follow right. what I'm saying there? No, I understand. Yeah, and that was actually the only uh, data or empirical study that I used where that was simulated. Everything else was uh, looking at you know, CDC death reports, mm-hmm. uh, FBI uniform crime report, some government statistics, national victims, national crime victims I, and survey. Let me interrupt which, you one more time. Yes. Sorry for that. I generally, you notice that I, okay. inter- I don't interrupt a lot. I like my, my audience, my, my guests, because you are my guests. You're welcome here. Um, one of the things that, that puzzled me as well is when you say that, um, you know, if you take a look at the FBI statistics, right? I always laugh at that, right? Because I live in Kingwood, Texas. I live in a lily white neighborhood, okay? And in my, my daughter went to school and I, I never showed up my activism then because I didn't want her to have to deal with the effects of that. But right. in my community, when those kids go to the park behind my house and they get caught with beer bus and all these things, including one guy who wrecked his father's Mercedes and the cop told him, hold on, when the person was trying to press charges, hold on a minute, and they went and do other things. Um, I see that these guys at the point of entry to the data that you read, in other words, the point of entry to that FBI data, is not the same if it were in my wife's community, which is a predominantly Black community on the other side of Houston, right? Something happens there, they are into the system, their numbers are in. So if you then look at the FBI data that's in there, it says, whoa, the crime rate among young black men so much higher than white, white young men. And in my mm-hmm. community, the white young people are heavy on drugs because they can afford it. These right. guys, you know, so what I'm saying is, um, when I see these reports, 
just in the raw. I want people to take it with a grain of salt. In fact, I would love for you to take it with a grain of salt when you're looking at those reports as well, to be able to say, well, you know, huh, that's something to, that is something to think about because I know, I know the, the thing that I fear the most. I'm a professional. I'm an engineer. I'm a business owner. I have all these things. I have my own house, my own right. business. And when I see a cop, my heart's right here in my throat. And I'm a grown man. Yeah. That's not accidental. You know? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I I'm not trying to, to no, no, no. I would make that's what negate we're having what you're saying, but when I get pulled over today, I, I get pretty darn nervous. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should, because you wrote the blue divide. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, I one there's a little bit difference. I, I totally understand what, what, where you're going with, uh, with the crime reports. Um, there's a difference between like, I didn't, the book is not about drink, you know, lower levels of force, mm-hmm. drugs, or anything like that. it's about deadly force. And so mm-hmm. when you look at the FBI uniform crime reports, the chances that a, a department is not going to report mm-hmm. that they had to kill somebody is extremely low. Um, All right. I know this because hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I got to challenge you there. And let me tell you why I'm challenging you there. Okay. When we had, what's the name of the, the when Chauvin killed, uh, killed a man, that report didn't say he killed the man on the neck. That report said, and this is why I said BS in, BS out. That report said he died of accident or, or, or some sort of natural causes or something like that. If that young girl didn't have the video on, so that other people would have seen it, that would have been classified in the FBI data, not as a murder, not as killing by force, but something else. Well, usually what they do is they they refer to it as homicide, which mm-hmm. does not necessarily include murder. Mm-hmm. It's, true, uh, true. You, you're right. Yeah. And but you see, when you take the CDC for example mm-hmm. their reports and you compare them side by side with the FBI crime reports on uh, deadly force uh, they're they're very similar um, the national crime victim survey has nothing to do with police right it's just surveying victims of crime and, and they ask things like okay do you do you know the race of the offender did you know their gender you know th- th- those kinds of things um, and the the data is not exact, but it matches up fairly well with deadly force. I don't I don't doubt that some departments are not going to. Uh, sorry, we're getting. It looks like sounds like we're getting hail outside of my house right now. Oh, is that is that hail out there in in, in New Brunswick? Yeah, we were that supposed to have a really big storm coming through. So. <laughs> my wife told me that. Yeah. Um, but uh, so my my poor truck. I don't have a garage, so my poor truck is probably going to have to go to the shop. <laughs> No problem. So you're, you're um, doing it but, even in a storm. We're having this conversation even during a storm. Yeah. But, you know, I do think that you're correct uh, in the sense that lower levels of, of crime don't often get reported, especially if you don't actually charge them. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so like technically minor in possession of alcohol, right. That, that's a crime. But you may say, all right, just dump out the beard and go home. Right. And so that wouldn't go into the report. Right. And, and I've done that before where I, I gave these guys a break. They had some uh, very small amounts of marijuana on them. And I'm like, 
they obviously weren't high while they were driving. They just had it. And I'm like, look, let's go on camera. Let's dump out the marijuana on the street, and rub it with our feet, you know, and then and you just go on your way with, with a traffic violation, which is what mm-hmm. pulled them over in the first place with. Um, departments, I work for a good department. We Every time we used any force or a threat of force, we had to report it. Um, the leadership at my department was, was very good about training. That's not the case for every department, especially smaller departments. They don't have the budget. They don't have the thing. And, and another thing that, that we see is when you hire cops who have a bachelor's degree or higher, they tend to have fewer use of force complaints. They tend to have fewer complaints in general because the thought is going to college, you, you're, you, you don't. I guess you're more enlightened is, is probably the best way to put it. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I definitely agree that, that on non-lethal crime, that the, the numbers could be skewed because cops aren't necessarily going to charge this person while they may charge that person. Uh, but I also think that a lot of cops are, are understanding of, of the, the tension. When I, when I was a cop, I started in 2004. Um, I, I'll never forget. I pulled over this car at like three in the morning. So it, it's, you know, mm-hmm. very dark outside. There's not, a, it wasn't a well-lit area. It's a residential place and, and the guy ran a stop sign. So I pull him over and it's a college student. He's a young black man. And, uh, said, Hey, you know, this is why I stopped you and licensed and insurance and all that. And he was very respectful. And when I came back up, he said, sir, can I ask you a question? And I was like, yeah. He's like, did you pull me over because I'm black? Mm-hmm. And I was shocked at it. I was like, Oh crap. This is, you know, I knew this was going to happen eventually. Right. It was going to be that. And I was like, well, sir, I was like, it's three o'clock in the morning. I, I didn't know who was behind the wheel of the car because I can't see into your car. And he's like, Oh, that makes sense. And everything was fine. Um, and I just use that example as I was aware of how my actions towards people of color would be perceived, um, not just because I'm white, but also because I'm a cop, right? So I think more understanding from police uh, in that context uh, would be beneficial is why I said, you know, when I did that podcast, Three Cops Talk, they even said, you know, we haven't, as a profession, done a good enough job. Um you know, and in San Antonio, there there's stories where the neighborhood cop comes by and plays basketball with the kids mm-hmm. in the street and stuff like that, where it's a white cop and black kids or Mexican American kids or other Hispanic groups. Um, you know, and I think that needs to be put out there more to realize that there there are people behind the badge. Sometimes they do bad things. Most of the time, they're just trying to to do their job and get home to their family. Uh, but I think we, we definitely need to punish those cops who who abuse their their authority, um, whether that be in a, in a sense of, you know, Derek Chauvin. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other three officers were uh, found guilty of uh, violating Floyd's civil rights uh, just last month, actually about three weeks ago. I, look, They're going to spend life in prison. I am, you know? I am with you there, but it has to start somewhere. And it has, but I, I also think it has to start with, with a little bit of reflection, and that is that um, I think cops, and by the way, this is not only white cops. I, I really mean it because there's something about cops when even black cops, I mean, there are certain black cops in a black neighborhood that'll treat those, those kids worse 
than some white mm-hmm. caps in that neighborhood. So, so understand what I'm saying. My, my thing is always right. to find solutions to issues. And there is, in fact, a problem with cops and the minority community. And I think, I think folks have to, as opposed to looking at, let's say, the FBI numbers and all those kind of things, right? Which, I, yes, that has to be a part of the discussion. I think you have to also look at what people perceive and feel, which is something that I think you just said. That Pete, that that one of the problems with the police officers is they don't, you know, they don't communicate things. Are but I also think we have to be honest to realize certain things, right? Um, cops in general, and you tell me, and I, I, I think we want to be honest mm-hmm. because of what we put out there, because of the narrative. Cops are generally more fearful of black men. Don't you agree with that? Well, I can't speak for others. I, I not the you, aggregate. No. You're let me the aggregate you, possibly. You, yeah, you started. I mean, out, you started out telling me you were in the ministry and all like. So you kind of have an idea of how to talk to people. But a lot of these, right. you're from Uvalde. Come on, you know there there are a lot of these folks in these different towns in 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 texas or anywhere these little towns that you know they're fearful and more so of somebody who would look like me and i i I just wish cops would just come out and say you know man you know i've had some of them tell me my by the way my i have relatives that are cops you know as well and come out and say yeah that's the narrative you know their their first instinct it's like that that thing that i showed where where they attack the black kid threw the black kid on the mm-hmm. floor i think we have to admit that that bias is ingrained and i'm not trying to make it a good thing or a bad thing i'm saying it's just the thing yeah well and knowing a thing we can work on not yeah i mean I, I would agree with that i mean not not having seen the video you're referencing to but i've seen other similar ones mm-hmm. one in mckinney texas from a few years ago where there's like a big pool party in one of those neighborhoods um i i think that let me just back up a little bit there. One of the first parts, the first part of my book is about the training because mm-hmm. I wanted, my goal in writing this is to make things better between right. I know uh, Black America and, and, and policing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think what happens to your point is the perception, especially appearance or maybe the way someone talks. I'll be honest. I don't, I pulled over a black man in a BMW with a suit and tie. I didn't once for a second think he was ever going to be a threat. Right. I've pulled over white guys with wife beater shirts, the jeans, the, the heavy boots, and that chain link with the thing and maybe some tattoos. And I think this might be, you know, a bad dude. Right. So I think that, that honestly, I think is part of it. And unfortunately um, to your point, the, the narrative around young black men often is that, oh, because your pants are down around your butt or, you know, you're wearing, you know, a bandana around your neck or whatever the case may be, that, mm-hmm. that somehow you're automatically, you know, kind of a bad dude. Um, and I, I think that's unfair. You got to treat people. And I, my department was good about treat people how you want to be treated. Don't change that unless they're resisting somehow. Mm-hmm. You know, don't get stern with them. If if they're compliant, just treat them like you would your neighbor. Um, I think more of that needs to happen. Um, but I also want people to understand what the law and the training actually says, because you see this a lot with 
well, the police shot him and, and he was unarmed. Um, sometimes that can be an unjustified police shoot. Sometimes it can be justified. Um, I write about this in my book after I left law enforcement. I spent four years uh, training mixed martial arts pretty heavily. And the first day I went in there, um, I've, I boxed a guy who had been boxing since he was, he was a kid. I could not lay a finger on him. And he was just playing with me the whole time, you know, and, and after about 18 months, two years or so, I remember a, a guy from the Marine Corps came in and I made him tap out because he couldn't touch me. And I was just punching him, not really hard, but I just kept peppering him with jabs and stuff because he didn't know how to fight. And I started to think about that. I was like, you take your average high school wrestler, male wrestler. I would say out of an average high school male wrestler, 90% of them, and I'm just guessing, but 90% of them could probably tackle a cop and take their gun because cops are not trained and usually are not trained. The ones that are have an advantage. Um, and, and I feel that's, that is another way that we could really address some of this problem because if you are in a fight with somebody and you know your ability and you know that you can survive on your back and you can get up after someone tackles you and stuff like that, you're much less likely to resort to weapons, right? Because you, and the officers that were doing MMA when I was a cop, before I started doing it, they, they rarely used any kind of intermediate weapons. They were able to use wrestling or jujitsu or stuff to gain control without harming them, uh, the subject. Um, you know, and, and cops, I think it would be better for them, but they also have to realize that there's no background check to go to an MMA class, you know, and, and so there's some, some not so honest people that, that work out there and they know how to fight really well. And maybe they don't, you know, have any qualms about going after a, a cop or trying to hurt them or, or what have you. Um, but, you know, I think that that's something that, that I wanted people to understand is all the different nuances that goes into when you make a use of force decision. I, I want to say something before, because we're coming close to the end of the interview. And I want, by okay. the way, folks, I want you to get the book because let me tell you why I want folks to get the book, because there are certain little snippets in the book that I'd like folks to write to you about, you know, you know, send, Hey, send Will Marvitz an email and say, Will, let's explain this a little bit more here. Um, but I think it's important because your point of view in as much as you want to do good, I know that you're a good person. I think there are some other points that need to be um, exposed there. Like, let, let's talk about uh, cops using force and deadly force. I think the laws are written all wrong. And why are the laws written all wrong? Because there are too many dead people. And I'm not only talking this on a color barrier at right. all. I'm talking about a, uh, there is so much protection for the cop in, uh, when he shoots and well, even though the person did absolutely nothing wrong, because I had the feeling that he may or she may hurt me, I have the right to blow your head off. There are a lot of these laws that need to be rethought, right? Well, and, and I've often told people, you may disagree with what the law says, you may disagree with how the training mm -hmm. works, um, but I just want to explain what it is because people generally don't know what the rules are. And that's good. Um you know, and so, it, yeah, if you want to have a discussion that we need to change some of the, the laws surrounding use of force, then, then we can have that discussion. Uh, I will say that if you go too far the other direction, mm -hmm. people aren't going to want to be cops anymore. Well, you know, you know I, 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 so I, you got to have a balance there. I hear you. I hear you. But the thing about it is most cops 
don't ever discharge their weapon. Most cops, right? Never, you know, most again, most cops are. I most cops really are good. I don't normally say that, but most cops really <laughs> are good. Uh, my 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 family. I have a lot of family that are yeah. cops. They're really good, but too often. And and one of them told me he said, after I am retired, I'll tell you some stories. And my thing to my cousin was, my God, so you actually saw some stuff and didn't say anything. He said, I had a family to feed. You get the point. Yeah. So, I mean, so, I mean, there's, there's a lot that needs changing. And I think somebody like you coming out and writing a book about it and putting it out there, I think it's a good thing. So folks get the book, The Blue Divide, Policing and Race in America by Dr. Will Moravitz, former cop, now a professor at the at Texas State University, etc. Get get the book, and but I, I want to finish here this way. Uh, well, I'm going to give you the same honor I give everybody else. What would you have liked me to ask him? Please do it in a minute. What would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? Oh gosh. Um, if nothing, it's fine too. I, I yeah, nothing really pops out um, to me. I think you know, maybe asking about one of the cases that I discuss in the book is like the middle of the book is where I go through Eric Garner through, I think Makai Bryant was the most, yeah, I, the I, I, saw, I, I saw them in the, yeah. The, and just looked at, looked at some of those high profile. And again, if you read those chapters, you know, that I, I don't shy away from criticizing the police when, mm-hmm. when I think it was warranted. Uh, and I think that's something that's starting to happen that more people are, are realizing that they need to stop this blue wall of silence um, my department, like I said, was very good about that. When you stepped out of line, someone was there to pull you back. Um, but, um, in, in other cases, you know, I just think that you can disagree with the law, but based on the law, law, that, that particular shooting was justified, right? Yeah. That, that's what I wanted people to understand. And because I, I don't know if I didn't see this in your book, whether you said at any point that it is the law, but it's probably a law that needs to be changed. I didn't really address that. No. Right. Okay. So what, what I'm saying is I, I, I hope people would read and, and, and see when you say, well, the law says this is legal and we can say, well, you know what, that, that, that type of law puts my life in jeopardy whenever I, I'm in front of a cop. And let me tell you, when I'm in front yeah. of a cop, I'm the, the most civil person. My hands are on, <laughs> you see me stop, you well, should read. Look for the article that I wrote about that cop who's, who, who kind of smirked at me because I was so, and I, it's the one that got the commendation because of the blog I wrote. Yeah. I was so, I'm always proper with these cops. Well, right? see, yeah, I carry, I carry a gun. I have license to carry and I, I have it when I drive, there's a magnet right underneath my steering column. Mm-hmm. That's where I have it. So if I get, when I get pulled over, I'm like, my hands are all the way on the dash. And I, first thing I say is <laughs> I have a license to carry. The gun's right here. Can you please remove it or can i please right. get out of the car and you know, there you thing. go hey um, look uh will i i, I gotta go this has okay. been will Morovitz is a professor of political science for alamo community colleges and texas state university look it's been my honor to have you as a police officer as a professor as a phd to speak to i i hope people will get your book and send you their, their comments about it to, about what they feel so thank you so kindly for having been on well, i appreciate it very much i enjoyed it too Okay, folks, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I, I enjoyed speaking to him, and I have some other outtakes that I'm going to play. Uh, there's one that I'm going to play where he says, uh, you know, black guys need to listen to what Chris Rock had to say. It's a little uh, four-minute addition that I, 
I looked at him and I said after, because we were speaking afterwards, and I told him, hey, I want to use this piece even though the interview is closed. And I am very respectful to the people I interview, meaning I don't want to give them a gotcha or anything like that. And he said, yeah, it's okay for you to go ahead and use the, some of what we spoke about. There's one particular piece I cut out because I know he probably wouldn't have wanted that in there. But, um, so, but what I did is I have another five-minute piece that I'm going to post as soon as I get a chance to post as well. Anyhow, um, I have another video that I, we don't have a lot of time left. I've been following what you guys have been putting. Thank you guys for liking the interview. I think these types of conversations are important. But let me play this because today, uh, Graham is looking, uh, uh, Graham, Senator Graham is looking for a reason not to vote for Jackson, for Judge Jackson. So he, Lindsay goes out on a, on a tirade and then he was put in check and watch him run. So let's go ahead and play Lindsey Graham and then we'll take it on the other side. Lindsey Graham is trying to find some reason not to vote for our, our Scottus nominee, Katanji Brown-Jackson. He is going to vote against her, so he needs to find a reason. So he goes into one of his tantrums. He first questions her about uh, defending somebody in, in uh, Guantanamo. Then he gets on her for an amicus break. And breach, and then he, uh, Amicus brief, and then he goes ahead and uh, castigates her because he claims a lot of left-wing organizations wanted her, and and those that want to pack the courts and all of that want her. I mean, things that she has no control over, of course. And packing the courts, it's not she who can pack the courts; it's the political side of the equation, the congressional side of the equation, right? But anyhow, so he asks her questions. And after she's very good at answering the response, Dick Durbin goes ahead and he annihilates uh, Graham with everything that he said very calmly. He was able to say, ah, you know, Graham is just a pompous buffoon. He didn't say it that way, of course, but we know that's what he meant. I want you to listen to this. Let's take it on the other side. So we'll have a 20 minutes more later on, but here's what I would say. That every group that wants to pack the court, that believes this court is a bunch of right-wing nuts that are going to destroy America, that consider the Constitution trash, all wanted you picked. And this is all I can say, is the fact that so many of these left-wing radical groups that would destroy the law as we know it, declared war on Michelle Childs and supported you is problematic for me. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Graham. Let me mention uh, a few points here. Uh, Congressman Jim Clyburn was a strong supporter of Michelle Childs, and now I believe he is publicly supporting your nomination. And Michelle Childs has been nominated by President Biden uh, to be a circuit judge, and she will be considered by this committee as quickly as possible. On the issue of Guantanamo, there are currently 39 Guantanamo detainees remaining. The annual budget for Guantanamo is $540 million per year, which means each of these detainees uh, is being held at the expense of 12 or $13 million per year. If they would be incarcerated at Florence, Colorado, the Supermax prison, federal prison, the amount would be dramatically, dramatically less. Since 9-11, nearly 1,000 convicted in the United States on terrorism charges. Since 2009, 
with the beginning of the Obama administration, the recidivism rate of Guantanamo detainees released is 5 percent. So Mr. Chairman, according to the Department, uh, Director of National Intelligence, is 31 percent. Somebody is wrong here. If you're going to talk about what I said, I'm going to respond to what you said. If we close Gitmo and move them to Colorado, do you support indefinite detention under the law of war for these detainees? I would just say uh, I'm giving the facts. And I the answer make, is no. I want to make sure that it's clear. The 31 percent you referred to goes back to the year 2009. <laughs> What does it matter when it goes back to we had them and they got loose and they started killing people? Well, I could just say that uh, if you're one of the people killed in 2005, does it matter to you when we release them? Suggest that a president of your own party released them in. I'm suggesting the system has failed miserably and advocates to change this system like she was 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 advocating would destroy our ability to protect this country. We're at war. We're not fighting a crime. This is not some passage of time event. As long as they're dangerous, I hope they all die in jail if they're going to go back and kill Americans. It won't bother me one bit if 39 of them die in prison. That's a better outcome than letting them go. And if it costs $500 million to keep them in jail, keep them in jail because they're going to go back to the fight. Look at the friggin' Afghan government. It's made up of former detainees at Gitmo. This whole thing by the left about this war ain't working. Let me also note that Larry Thompson, who served as Deputy Attorney General under President George W. Bush, Orrin Kerr, Special Counsel, Viet Dan, who served as Assistant Attorney General for Legal Policy in the George W. Bush Administration, John Bellinger, and former D.C. Circuit Judge, Solicitor General, and Independent Counsel Ken Starr were also prominent conservative lawyers signing a letter defending attorneys who represented Guantanamo Bay detainees. Uh, I don't believe that we should associate... Uh, that activity as being inconsistent with our constitutional values. It is amazing. It is amazing. There we go. After Graham was exposed, after Graham was embarrassed, after Graham made a fool of himself, after Dick Durbin proved that holding a few people in Guantanamo costing $13 million per person, after he points out that uh, defense of terrorism is more effective in the tr- in our legal system than in the fraud that is Guantanamo. When he explains all of that and puts gives results, Graham couldn't take it. So what did Graham do? Throw a tantrum and walks out of the hearing. I mean, these guys are amazing, amazingly fraudulently. Well, we can end it right there. Look, folks, you know, it's almost done with the show and I forgot to do my ass. Folks, please listen to this. I'm Igberto Willis, as host of Politics Done Right, a progressive radio media show on Pacifica Network's KPFT 90.1 FM Houston that engages all ideologies. I found that our political angst isn't mostly ideological. There is a well-designed effort by many in power to control us. If we are at each other's throats, we are less likely to demand our economic and local wishes. In that light... I wrote three books. I wrote the first one titled, As I See It, Class Warfare, The Only Resort to Right-Wing Doom to Describe the Entire Economy in a Manner We Can All Understand. It highlights why it was designed to pill for most as it empowers a few, the chosen. The second book, titled, It's Worth It, How to Talk to Your Right-Wing Relatives, Friends, and Neighbors, Take It to the Next Level. 
after understanding how the system pilfers, it is incumbent that we can speak to our peers to empower a change. The third book, How to Make America Utopia, Take Away the Economy from Those Who Rigged It, gives us a place to land. After learning about our economy that is dysfunctional for most and learning how to engage the other side, we point out what would make an economy that works for all. Each book stands on its own, but together they provide the full picture. Please consider getting one or more. You will undoubtedly learn, be entertained, and help us continue the mission with our blogs, articles, videos, and books. Absolutely so, absolutely so. Anyway, folks, please remember also you can provide support to Politics and Right by going to politicsandright.com slash PayPal. Politicsandright.com slash PayPal. Or if you choose to become what we call a patron, you can go to politicsdoneright.com slash patron. I have another good interview that I, I got to, as soon as I get off the show today, I got to go do another one as well. But support us also at politicsdoneright.com slash patron. Or if you want our all-encompassing support to say, ah, let me see what's my preferred method of providing support to a program that is here to enlighten us all, to empower us all politicsdoneright.com slash support politicsdoneright.com slash support folks I hope you enjoyed today's program I hope you enjoyed what I'm what we're trying to do here right enlighten us I mean it's not about uh, being in a constant state of fighting it's not about being in a constant state of disagreement it's about how do we actually get things done I haven't saluted Carl Cox welcome aboard welcome aboard Eric Hayes, I don't think I saluted you. Emma Beckers, welcome aboard. Uh, who else? Paul Fleming, welcome aboard, my brother. Uh, Roberto Luis, como estas mi hermano favorito? Robert Davin, welcome aboard. Uh, let's see. Life in prison with no trial or ability to face your accuser. Sounds like real American. No, it's not. That's the thing. They speak out of both sides of their mouth. We know that. Tom C., hermano mío, como estas? So Lindsey Graham is against Scudder's nominee Katanji B. Jackson because groups supporting her want to destroy America and law trash the court. <laughs> He's funny, isn't he? Very, very funny. Very, very funny. I think he, he, he made a fool of himself like he always does. Thank you for having been here, Senor AVQ. E2247 says, Cruz Graham sound like G.A. St. Stephen's cornerstone speech. I know what you mean. All right, anybody else that I didn't get a chance to because of how long that interview was? Uh, let's see who else I've got here. I don't see anybody else that I need to give a shout out to. Uh, if I missed you, drop me a quick line. So, I, Peggy Lopez, como estas, mi amiga? I don't think I called you out yet. Uh, who else is here? Roberto Luis, I think I called my brother out already. All right, anybody else? Put it at the end of the show. Okay, guys, I got to get out of here. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right. And you guys know how I end this baby. I am what? We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to, trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.